Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The height of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So now, Father, we have heard your word. Today we hear your word. Now, Father, would you speak to your people? Or through this psalm, you are delivering a message to us. I pray that you would enable us to hear it, to receive it, and to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 95. And I'm just going to start with confession. Is that okay? I am woefully inadequate to preach Psalm 95 today. And I know preachers often say that kind of like as a posturing of humility, but I'm just telling you, like for real, what is being rebuked in Psalm 95 is me. What we're being called to, exuberant, expressive joy in the character and word of God. Like, like I am a Stoic's Stoic. Wooden face. No emotion. Like, that's me. And what this psalm tells us is that expressing worship to God is how we battle lethargy and how we battle apathy and how we battle indifference. Expressing worship to God, exuberant joy before the God who is worth it, is how we fight for hope, how we fight to believe, how we fight for faith, how we fight our sin. Basically, what this psalm tells us is that gathering with God's people to genuinely and authentically express real joy before Him is not just a church trick that gets people here on Sunday, but it is good for our souls and it bears much fruit. And I am a Stoic's Stoic who planted Redeemer Church with a bunch of you who are competing with me to be the Stoic of all Stoics. One of the most horrifying things I've ever read in a book is that a church's worship expression will be set by the worship expression of its pastor. Like, that makes me worthy of being fired today. 
I love the Lord. I believe that I worship him. But here's what this psalm challenges us. Genuine joy in God expresses itself. I mean, any of you men ever dared on Valentine's Day to be like, sweetheart, I love you, but I just didn't want to express it. Anybody ever tried that? Did it go well for you? No, because genuine joy expresses itself. And Psalm 95 is going to challenge us on that front, and then it's going to do something else. It's going to say that expressed joy battles apathy, and expressed joy battles indifference, and expressed joy battles love for the world. And that's a challenge that we're going to need to hear today. That's where we're going in Psalm 95. But before we go there, I want you to think of something. Think of something that brings you great joy. Like that joy that you can't hold it back. Martin, this is for you, bro. Two years ago, when the University of Tennessee Vols threw a Hail Mary at the last second to, to steal a win from the Georgia Bulldogs, and those of you who have Comcast didn't see it because Comcast had blacked out that day, but on my free antenna, I jumped and shouted for joy in my living room. Right, boys? We did it together. And really, that's rebuke enough for all of us, right? Genuine joy expresses itself. Just like genuine anxiety expresses itself and genuine angst expresses itself. And those of you that are like, dude, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't care about football. Fill in the blank. It's a mad lib. What brings you genuine joy? And then tell me, don't even try. You cannot repress genuine joy. True? True. So here's the challenge from Psalm 95. People of God find genuine joy, find genuine joy in God because that changes everything. And there's also another theme here. People of God find genuine joy in God with the people of God because that changes everything. There is not a single first person pronoun in this psalm. It's all us and we, not me and I. We know God personally, but he's put us in groups of people whereby we express our worship to him together. And so what the argument for this morning is, is that what we are doing today is a divine gift for the people of God to be called into joy and obedience and faithfulness before God. And expressive worship fuels are living for God's glory. That's the message today. So let's see if this psalm actually tells us that. First point, note-taking friends, expressing worship. Expressing worship. Let's look at the first few verses here. And the question that I want to put before us as we look at these first few verses is, why do we worship as we do? Why does the church worship as it does. I mean, I mean, really, like, outsiders kind of look at what we do, and they're like, oh, that's like a mediocre concert in a really bad TED Talk put together, but they call it worship. 
If you don't know those things are, go look it up later, okay? But why do we do what we do? This psalm is going to tell us that worship, rightly understood, is expressed joy, expressed thanksgiving, expressed repentance, expressed need, expressed asking, expressed delighting in God that's done with the people of God. Worship is expressed, and it's expressed corporately. So first... Worship is expressed. And the operative word is expressed. Listen. O come, verse 1, let us sing. That's an imperative. That's plural. That calls us to what? Express joy in God. Verse 1 again. Let us make a joyful noise. That is an plural imperative To express joy to God. Verse 2. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. That is an imperative. That is plural. To come with expressed thanksgiving before God. Verse 2 again. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. That is an imperative. That is plural. To express joy in God with songs of praise. Not convinced yet? Verse 6. Let us worship. That is an imperative. That is plural. Calling us to express to God His greatness and how meaningful His greatness is. Verse 6 again, let us bow down. That is an imperative that is plural, calling on us to yield to the greatness of God. Verse 6 again, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That is an imperative which is plural, which is calling upon us to kneel physically to display our worship of the greatness of God. I hope that just by that little grammar lesson, you'll see that the psalmist's desire is that the people of God would give physical, verbal expression to the delight and the worship and the joy and the need and the dependence that we find in God. Will you grant me? That's, that's what he's saying. Let us be found giving expression to our delight in God. So worship is expressed joy, expressed thanksgiving, expressed delighting in God. And the operative word is expressed. And so when we read this psalm, so many of us, me included, are challenged on let it out. Express it in some way. Express it in some way. Now, now can I be clear for a minute? Modern evangelicalism has created definitions of what this means. Like this. Like you got to stand like this to really mean it. Right? You don't. Or, or you got to really hold your hands like this. To, like, like, like I'm not interested in some fake posture to fakely communicate something. 
What I'm interested in is an overwhelming joy in the greatness of our Creator, our Sustainer, our Redeemer, and our Lord that cannot be bottled up, but will be expressed in ways that are appropriate with your makeup and your demeanor. So look, I'll just tell you, I know me, and if I'm down here like doing this and dancing on the front row, like that is fake as fake can be. But there are appropriate ways. I mean, you can tell I can't dance just from that little shenanigan right there. But there are appropriate ways for stoic, withdrawn, introverted people like me to express the greatness of God. And if I'm unwilling to express it, I'm stealing his glory and I'm stealing his fame. And God is saying to me and to you, express my greatness and display the fruit of your salvation because it is what I'm doing in you. People of God are being called on in this passage to a worship that expresses itself. And I am so leery of false applications of this. I want to just caveat it all day long, but I'm also leery of giving so many caveats that the passage isn't meaningful anymore. So I'm just going to let it stand. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us bring thanksgiving. Let us sing songs of praise. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. And let us not be found stealing His glory by refusing to express His greatness in worship. Because all worship is, is giving to God the praise, the glory, the fame that's due His name because no one competes with Him. And all competitors pale in comparison and are ultimately destroyed. So this passage is calling us to a worship that is expressed. And the second point I want to just put here is the call is not just to go do it in your car, which is awesome, but to express this worship with the people of God. Have you ever had that Sunday where you're so filled with doubt, anxiety, fear, hurt, grief, that you just kind of sit quietly and listen? You ever had one of those Sundays? I have them a lot. It's in to rebuke that. I think that what goes on in Psalm 95 is that when the people of God express their worship to God, that expression ministers to those who are hurting. And that expression ministers to those who are suffering. And that expression gives hope to those who are filled with doubt. And those of us who are walking in a place of joy, we express that so that we don't steal God's glory and so that we minister to the body. But together, worship is to be expressed. And I'm calling calling on us to be a people in keeping with who God has made us to be expressive in our worship. And I refuse to manipulate it out of you. But I do also refuse to ignore what's being said in Psalm 95. Second point. Like, that's actually a pretty good sermon right there, right? Like, we could just stop and say, okay. But the psalmist does something a little bit perplexing and a little bit overwhelming to me, 
He, he puts underneath this call to worship, he puts a warning. He puts a warning. And I believe that what's going on with the warning, so the warning appears in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. And I believe that what's going on with the warning is this. The psalmist is saying that expressed worship is the tool that we use to fight apathy. Expressed worship is the tool that we use to fight indifference. Expressed worship is the tool that we use to fight not caring. Expressed worship is the tool that we use to fight loving our sin or loving our distractions more than we love the Lord. So if you just wrestle with this, let us sing, let us make a joyful noise, let us come into his presence, let us worship him with songs of praise, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Do not harden your hearts. What's going on there? What's going on with this warning is the psalmist is saying that an absence of expressed joy is a sign of a hardened heart. And hardened hearts are hearts that fall into sin and rebellion against God. The inability to express joy and worship to God is a sign of a heart that is hardening. And hardened hearts are the playground of Satan to steal our joy in God and to pull us away from the blessing of walking with Him. The warning is here because what he's saying is what I'm calling you to is not an experience and what I'm calling you to is not like icing on the Christian cake and what I'm calling you to is not specialness. What I'm calling you to is a gift from God to battle the apathy and the hardness and the uncaringness in your own heart. So I believe what he is saying in these last four verses is Do you not really care to to engage with God? You need to worship. Do you not really care to hear from His Word? You need to worship. Do you not really find any expression of anything? You're just kind of dull and stale and stuck. You need to worship. And not just worship anything, but worship God. What he's saying is the antidote to apathy is worship. So, So look with me here. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the word harden here, I think before I started studying this week, and I think you guys probably with good evangelical mindsets, when you hear hardened heart, you think about a heart that loves rebellion against God. You would think of the heart that wants its own way and would stop at nothing to get its own way and would plunge into any sin or any form of rebellion to get with its way. But that's actually not what's being referred to here with hardened heart. What hardened heart means is an indifferent, apathetic, dull heart. So what that means is we're all prone to drifting toward different degrees of hardness. And if you're like indifferent to God, indifferent to His grace, indifferent to His mercy, indifferent to His blessings, indifferent to His word, you need to hear this warning. He's saying, be found worshiping 
so that you're not found with a hardened heart. And then he gives these, these two examples from the history of the life of Israel. And in and both instances, God expressed in the words of the psalmist loathing for that generation of Israelites. And God, for their hardness and rebellion against Him, did not let them physically enter the promised land. So what happened in both instances was the people of Israel, and by the way, if you want to look these up later, you can find them at Exodus chapter 17 and in Numbers chapter 20. So Exodus chapter 17 and in Numbers chapter 20. But what happened in the first instance in Exodus 17 is God had delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt. The Passover, the ten plagues, the death of the firstborn son, the parting of the Red Sea, the Red Sea destroying Pharaoh and his army. And now they're out there in the wilderness and they look at the Lord and they say, are you going to kill us? Did you just bring us out here to destroy us? And God's kind of like, you saw all of, this is the Jamie uninspired version, but you saw all of that and you're going to doubt my word and you're going to doubt my promise and you're going to doubt my goodness. So through Moses, God rebukes them and he sends Moses before them and they're standing in front of this rock And God tells Moses to take the rod that he used to part the Red Sea, to take that rod and strike the rock with it. And so Moses takes the rod and strikes the rock, and God displays yet again his covenant faithfulness to his people and to his word by having water pour out of the rock and supply nourishment and sustainment to the Israelites who were thirsty and hungry and wondered if God was going to kill them. Okay? Then... Fast forward a whole generation, and the exact thing happens again. They're out here, and they're like, God, are you just going to kill us? So this is the numbers 20. Are you just going to kill us? Do Do you not have a plan to deliver us and to keep your word and to bless us? And so now you have a generation who knew of the Passover, who knew of the deliverance from Egypt, who knew of their parents questioning of God, and who knew of God's giving them of water with the rock. And perhaps they just wanted some water more than they wanted to know God's blessing. But they questioned God again, and this incensed God that they would doubt His word and doubt His blessing and be indifferent to His promises and just want a cup of water. And yet God again had the rod strike the rock and deliver the people, okay? So God, at every step of the way, is showing that He is good, He is creator, He is justifier, He is sustainer, He is blesser. Nothing will stand between Him and His word. Nothing will stand between Him and His people. He will keep His promises. And His people, they hear His word and they doubt. His people, they hear His word and they disbelieve. And they hear His word and they respond with apathy. And this psalm says that the Lord was displeased with their apathy. Not that he judged them and cast them off into eternal condemnation, but he was displeased with their apathy. And he said, you are not the type of people who will enter my promised land. You are not the people, the type of people who will represent me in this new place. You are not the type of people who will experience my 
rest. Those who will experience my rest are those who will believe my word, who will believe my promises, and who will joyfully follow after me. And then insert Psalm 95. We fight to do that by expressed joy in the goodness, provision, and care of the Lord. So this warning is screaming to us that we battle, we go to battle with our own hearts by forcing ourselves to express joy in God. Now, some of you might, you know, the astute biblical among us who, who are not liking this sermon at all might be prone to say, well, yeah, but that was for the Old Testament and, and that was for them, okay? That was, that was for then and that was about rocks and water and Sinai and promised land, but, but we're, we're in the New Testament, we're in the New Covenant, we're under Christ, things are different now. I would point you to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And what the author of Hebrews does is he takes Psalm 95 and he applies it to followers of Jesus in the first century. And so what the author of Hebrews does is he says that when Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear the word of the Lord, that means today, August the 5th, 2018. And you, in Psalm 95, that means you, you who are here hearing the word of the Lord today and me. And when it says, rest, they shall not enter my rest. It's not referring to the physical promised land, but it's referring to the joyful blessings of belonging to Christ. We who are in Christ have entered the rest. And we who are in Christ have heard the word. And we who are in Christ have nothing to fear in this world or in the life to come. And yet we battle with apathy. And Psalm 95 is for us to say we battle our apathy with expressed joy in God. That's it. That's the thesis. We battle our apathy with expressed joy in God. And so then what that means, and that leads to the third point, is that we have to learn to have worshipful, expressive minds, souls, and beings. We must learn to worship God rightly. So I have four things that I hope will help us as the people of God learn to worship God rightly. Number one, worship begins with God, God's work, and God's word. Number one, worship begins with God, God's work, and God's word. The battle begins with knowing who God is, what God has done, and what God has said. And Psalm 95 actually tells us this, and I bet we all skipped right over it. So go back to verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We read that, the rock of our salvation, and we went, Oh, that's cool, like God's like a rock and he's solid and he's unchanging. Those things are all true, right? But what's going on there 
Let us worship the rock of our salvation and let us not be found in apathy like those who stood in front of the rock and complained about God and Moses touched the rock and the rock poured forth with blessing showing that God indeed is our salvation. What the psalmist is saying is let us come and sing and make a joyful noise to the God who has saved us, has delivered us, has revealed himself to us, and has promised to show himself faithful over and over again. Let us make a joyful noise to that God, the rock of our salvation. Verse 3. This worship is fueled by knowing that the Lord is a great God, a king above all gods. We find fuel for worship by looking to who God is and by declaring God's greatness to Him and to the world. The Lord, the God of Israel, is a great God, the greatest God. He is a ruler over all other gods. Verse 4, we probably read this going, oh yeah, yeah, that's like common grace. Like, like in his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his and the sea is his and he formed the dry land. Like we probably, oh, that's like a common grace thing. No, what that is, is that's, that's a greater God thing because in this time, in this world, people believed in deities who ruled over individual things. There was a God of the sea and a God of the dry land. There was a God of the mountains and a God of the earth. And there was a God of these things and that things. And so what the psalmist is saying is we worship the great God and he is the God of all of it. The depths and the heights, the sea and the dry land. He is no tribal deity. He is the Lord of everything. Not only that, He, the Lord of everything, the King of all kings, is our God. He has made Himself known to us. And we are the people of His pasture. He has brought us into His place, His pasture, His blessing, His mercy, and His grace so that we could be the sheep of His hand. Do you see what's going on here? Worship is fueled by who God is and what God has shown us to be true of Himself. So minimally in this psalm, our worship is fueled by the fact that the, that the God who is revealed in the Scriptures is the one true God who is Lord over everything. And this Lord over everything has come down to make Himself known to us and to pull us into His field of blessing, to pull us into His field of protection, to pull us into His field of joy and mercy and greatness. And we pursue worship by preaching to ourselves who God is. So perhaps you've ever wondered, like, why do we sing a bunch of songs here at Redeemer? Well, number one, because I believe you're going to remember those more than you remember anything that I'm saying right now. They'll, like, stick in your head when you're in the shower in the morning. There's nothing about the cadence of my voice that, that goes there. And number two, because they are filled with reminders of who God is. They were filled with reminders of how faithful God is. Worship, we learn to worship first by being overwhelmed with who God is and what God has done for us. So if you're new to the faith, or perhaps you're exploring the faith, and you're like, man, but see, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know who God is. I don't know what he's done for me. Let me just give you a few tangible things. Look around. 
everything that you see here, there, and everywhere was made by him and by his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be land and sea, and there was land and sea. He said, let there be humans, and there were humans. Everything that exists was made by this powerful God. Second, take a deep breath. God, by his grace and his mercy, is sustaining your life. I don't know much about the ways of God and the process of his sovereignty, but I can tell you this. If you're breathing, he wants you here, and it's a gift that you don't deserve. Number two, consider that all of us sinned against God and deserved his destruction and judgment, and yet he sent his only son into the world to purchase deliverance and salvation for us all. And consider that his spirit is now dwelling in us to give us confidence in him. So if you don't know how to praise God for his goodness, consider those few facts Ask God to show you how great he is and take up your Bible and read it because every page is a testimony of the greatness of God and the goodness of God that leads to joy from the people of God. Number two, worship is to be expressed. I know I've said that before, but I'm gonna say it again. Many of us will learn to worship by expressing it. How many of you had confidence the first time you rode a bike? Anybody? Like, were any of you the five-year-old that walked down and was like, I'm going to dominate that two-wheel device and let's roll? No. Fear. What if I fall? What if I skin up my knee? What if I break my bike? We learn to ride a bike by riding a bike. We learn to worship God by the power of his spirit dwelling in us, but we learn to worship God by worshiping God. And so I want to challenge you to join me in, in, in committing to express what we think and we feel about God. Express it in your life. Express it to your friends. Express it in a journal. Express it in prayer. Express it in gatherings. Express it in your community group. Express it as we worship, but commit to express the goodness and the joy that we feel in God. Do not be stuffers when it comes to joy in God. And again, you can ask the Spirit to help you. Number three. I would encourage you to believe that worship is not a ritual that we go through, but worship is fuel for this life. I would encourage you to believe that worship is fuel for this life. There's lots of ways to define sin. Rebellion against God, not believing that God's word is true, not falling after God, not doing what God tells you. But I think another way to see sin is this. Sin is a barrier to worship. And one way that we fight our sin is engaging in worship. One way we fight against our loves that distract us from God is by engaging in worship. Second, many of us aren't stuck in sin. We're just stuck in distractions. We're stuck on our phones. We're stuck on our computers. We're stuck 
listening to podcasts. We're stuck checking Twitter. We're stuck posting on Facebook. We're stuck Instagramming. We're stuck doing things that distract us. And worship is a way to obliterate distraction. Sin, distraction are other, are other words for a hardened, apathetic heart. And worship, this psalm tells us, is a way to fight. It's fuel for the fight. Fourth, finally. Engage corporately. Engage corporately. I don't believe that God created you, has sustained your life, sent his son to die for you, and has called you to faith in him so that you could go hold yourself up in isolation and walk with God in the woods. I don't believe that for a minute. The Lord saved you and sustained your life and redeemed you and brought you to this place today to hear his word so that you would believe and worship and express your faith among his people in such a way that you would mutually be benefited while benefiting others. That's the way the kingdom is built. And I believe that when we are stale, stuck, and broken, what happens in these gatherings breathes joy and grace and life into our lives. And we leave here hopefully walking more in a desire to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and finding worship and joy in Him. So worship begins with God. Worship is to be expressed. Worship is fuel. Engage corporately. None of this is possible for any of us if it's not from Jesus. It was Jesus who died upon a cross to bring us into relationship with God. It was Jesus who died upon a cross to set aside our sin and give us hope. And so there are two ways that I'm going to invite you to respond to this sermon. Worship team, you can go ahead and come up. First of all, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, we're going to invite you to take the bread and take the cup. We call this the Lord's Supper as a response to who God is and what God has done as a way to express your joyful faith in Him. We do this every week as a way to say, the Lord is my maker and my sustainer and my redeemer, and I depend upon Him. If you're here today and you're not um, a Christian, you've never come to a place where you say, "I, I believe the gospel, I believe in Jesus, I need Him to forgive my sin. If you've never come to that place and you've never made that profession of faith, we would ask you to let the bread and the cup pass because when you take the bread and what you're, you're taking the cup, what you're saying is, I believe in Jesus. But today we would say to you, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus came to give you rest for your soul and salvation and freedom to express joy in the God who has delivered you. And so today I would say, consider Jesus. Come to Jesus. Ask Jesus to save you. Come and talk to me about your need of a Savior. Come to one of us and let us help you figure out how you can respond to God. So at this time, we're going to pass the bread. We're going to pass the cup. We invite everyone who is a brother or sister in Christ to take this meal as a way to say, we joyfully express our need for Christ. So the the bread and the cup are going to be passed. We're going to sing. I'll come back in a few minutes and we'll take them together.